0: welcome to the yams and yuka podcast where we explore the fabric of black identities through culture food art life experiences and more sharing the stories of international creatives i'm kamara hi everyone i'm heather and we are your
1: co-hosts thank you to those of you coming back to the table and welcome to all of our new listeners we have a great show planned for you today As always, we're going to start off with our appetizer, discussing today's theme. And after that, we'll bring our guests to the table. So let's jump into it. All right, Kamara. So for today, we are going to talk about building confidence and how do you do that? And what does it take to develop that self-confidence within yourself? Mm -hmm. I know for me, that is something I have not quite mastered. I suffer a lot from imposter syndrome. So for those of you who don't know what that is, that's basically like, you don't believe that you are as great or you don't believe you're as great as what people may say that you are or like what you're putting out there as far as your work um, and what you're hoping to achieve. So. You know, I'm doing things and I'm just like, yeah, this is what I want to do, but I don't really think that I'm that great at it. Not that I'm not that great at it, but I just don't have that belief or confidence in myself that I'm deserving of being in certain places or, or that I've reached a certain level. So for me, building confidence really takes a lot of self-work, inner work. And sometimes I don't really harp on it, but there are those times where it is really difficult. I think Social media certainly plays a, a part in it because, you know, everyone's putting their representative out there in the public. And people always say this, like you, people are only putting out the good things and the the highlights of their life and the work that they're doing. Social media is embedded in our work and how we showcase our work, how we connect with people. And it's nearly impossible to um, not see that and not to compare yourself in some ways. Yeah. I don't know. What, what is it like for you, Kamara?
0: Yeah, I've definitely experienced that. And I, I, I don't know, I, I don't have any statistics, but I think mm-hmm. I would say m- most successful people have experienced that at some point.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, absolutely. And sometimes you just kind of remind yourself or I am in a situation where somebody will ask me something, like I'm in charge. Obviously I have my own organization and somebody asks me and yeah. I'm like, why are you asking me? How am I supposed to know? (laughs) And then I'm like, oh, right. Yes, I should know because it is my organization. Um, So yeah, I think it's just definitely something that develops over time. And I have absolutely experienced that imposter syndrome. I think for me, how it's something that just develops over time. And Having more experiences and just preparing and just reflecting on the things that you have achieved that are positive. So, Mm -hmm. I guess having a measure of gratitude and uh, reflecting on positive things and just recognizing your achievements Mm. um, helps me um, build my self confidence. It is definitely still a work in progress, but I think. That reflection and recognizing achievements is something that definitely helps because even myself you know we've had the conversations where you'll be talking about something and and i remember when you mentioned the first time we did a AY, ayd 100 and you're like mm-hmm. you know that was so good and i'm like oh yeah yeah it was it was good <laughs> was it <laughs> Yes, girl. <laughs> I know. And like, you know, when you tell things to other people, like, you know, we did this event and um, they were awarded like 40 scholarships. I think I've said this before as well. And they're like, they ha- they did how many? That's like mm-hmm. incredible, you know. And sometimes it takes a person from the outside, especially somebody that's not connected to the industry to remind you of your achievements and how great they are. Yeah. But yeah, it definitely takes it takes work, um, and it takes it takes time. Um, and and I personally have tried to make an effort to put that work in, to be reflective, to use a journal, um, and to acknowledge my achievements. It, mm-hmm. it helps, but absolutely, it's still a work in progress.
1: Yeah, and are there like any mantras that you say to yourself or have in your mind that keeps you away from sort of? not believing in yourself and helps you to develop that, you know, that self-confidence.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because sometimes um, I actually had this moment, I don't know if it will translate, but um, I was away on holiday because I needed some time out Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: I was by the beach and I was sat by the water and the water was just beautiful. It was turquoise color. It was crystal clear. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to jump in because the water was just calling out my name, right? It was just Mm -hmm. saying, Mara, jump in. It's beautiful. And just incredibly all these reasons why I shouldn't jump in came into my head. Like I just thought, Oh, what if there's rocks? What if I hit hit myself on the rocks? Um, there was like this Island I could see in the distance that I wanted to swim to. And I said, what if I can't make it? What if boats come? And Mm. I was just, I was I was very aware in that moment that I came up with several reasons as to why I literally couldn't jump into this water <laughs> which made no sense and all of a sudden it just hit me um and for me it was very profound it just came into my head saying but Kamara you know how to swim and that right. was really that was really um representative of life for me because you know I was thinking you know, I know how to swim. A lot of people don't actually know how to swim. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, it just came into my head saying, like Kamara, you know how to swim. So what is the problem? Yeah, just swim. Just swim. And that was really something that was quite reflective of my life so that I got it actually printed on um in like nice script and made into a poster, Um, you know how to swim. So that is actually my mantra, just reminding me, I know how to do this. I've done Mm. this before. Um, Whenever you kind of doubt yourself or when you kind of think, oh gosh, I do not have the answers. Actually I do because I've done this before. I've done this many times before. We didn't start doing what we're doing yesterday. So for me, that's my mantra. Um, I know how to swim. That just reminds me and just brings me back into um, not being anxious about something um, because I just remember, actually, I've done it before and it worked out fine and it's going to work out fine again this time. And I know what I'm doing because I've done it before. I've said it before. I've been in a similar experience. Obviously, nothing is exactly the same. Right. But, you know, these things that we do, especially for me with teaching, choreographing, running events, leading groups, I've done all these things before and had success with them. So why is it going to be any different this time? So, yeah, so that's something that really helps me, reminds me that that, we, that I can do it.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great place for us to stop, continue on and invite our guests to the table just going to keep reminding ourselves, we know how to swim. Mm
3: -hmm. We know how
1: to do this and we can. All right. So we're going to take a short break. And then when we come back, we're going to invite our guests to the dinner table. We'll be right back. Welcome back. It's time to introduce our dinner guests. We have writer, activist, and entrepreneur Nick McCoy here with us today. But before he comes to the virtual table, I'll share a little bit about him. The founder of Obsidian, Nick McCoa, is a Ugandan poet and playwright and based in London. His debut, Kingdom of Gravity, was shortlisted for the Felix Dennis Prize and nominated by The Guardian as one of the best books of 2017. A Kaveh Kanem graduate fellow and Complete Works alumni, he won the 2015 Brunel Prize and 2016 Derricotte and Edie Prize for his pamphlet, Resurrection Man. He was the 2019 Writer-in-Residence for the Wordsworth Trust in Wasafiri. His play, The Dark, was directed by JMK Award winner Roy Alexander Wise and shortlisted for the 2019 Alfred Fagan Award. He has been involved in TV marketing campaigns for Voices Nationwide Celebrating Fatherhood and the Gillette Being a Man Digital Campaign for the South Bank Center. His poems appeared in the New York Times, Poetry Review, Rialto, Poetry London, Tri-Quarterly Review, Boston Review, Callaloo, and Wasafiri. Let's welcome Nick to the table.
0: Welcome, Nick.
2: Hey, how are you doing? Nice to, well, be with you virtually. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah we're so grateful to have you here. And it's amazing to hear um, about some of the fantastic work that you've done. And I'm excited to hear hear even more.
3: Thank you.
1: Yeah, same. I mean, Nick, you and I briefly met. It's been a couple of years now um, since we've last seen each other. And yeah, it's great to hear more about you and to get into some of your work. But before that, we're going to get to know you a little bit more personally. So
0: mm-hmm. yeah, here we go. Yeah, absolutely. So I know that you were born in Uganda, you've lived in Kenya and Saudi Arabia, and now you live in the UK. So the first thing I want to want to know, or that I'm curious about is where is home for you?
2: Hmm, that's a good question. Um, It's a question I used to ask myself a lot. But um, I guess, I mean, there are many awesome answers that home isn't really a place, home is the people you're with. And it's also the people who make you feel at home. So Uganda' is my home because I'm an African and I'm a proud African, um, not in any kind of political sense, but it's it's a it's a healing space africa if you if you're from it
3: mm-hmm. and I
2: notice that every time I return, whether it is my part of Africa which is Uganda but i've you know I've been to Nigeria a few times I've lived in Kenya. If you speak to any African and you say to them where they're from they say i'm I, I'm going home and when they mean home, they mean their country so but you do mm-hmm. feel like that when you you come back and but I felt a similar experience when I went to where my wife is partly from, she's Trinidadian, uh, part of her family are Trinidadian, and mm-hmm. they embraced me like I was at home. Um, mm. one of my best friends is from uh, is, is their family are have Bayesian roots, and that felt like home, so it wasn't really about the place, it was more about the people, mm. and there was something in their spirit that kind of sat inside my spirit. There were things that they ate that felt like things that I would eat. They they were things that they saw in me that that, that I also saw in them. So that was home. But ultimately, for me, the places home was where my children are right now. So wherever mm-hmm. they are is home. Or wherever when whenever I'm not with them, I feel away from home.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: that that's how I simplify it now because I'm very much aware that since they were born, my life not that my life before them wasn't important, but I've noticed that. My mind doesn't think about my life before. I have to actively think about my life before my children. I'm either thinking about the now or worrying about their future. Do you know what I mean? So it's kind of mm. that home is, a, is, is, is more of a spiritual place where they exist. Mm-hmm. I, don't know if I, I don't know if I answered your question. I don't know about
0: no, absolutely. Absolutely. And especially that connection to the family, um, and really the connection probably to the diaspora, cause you said you felt it when you're in other places as well. So, um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't have children myself, so, but I, I completely understand where you're coming from and Heather, I'm sure you can probably connect with that. Yeah
1: yeah I definitely connect with that uh there is a big a huge difference once you have kids come into your life. You always think about them first and then they're always ever present in your mind hmm
0: yeah, and I really liked what you said as well that when you go to Uganda or to africa um itself that it feels healing and there's mm-hmm. something about that 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 has that spiritual memory for you. We know that with home comes food and festivities, and we want to know what your favorite food from home is, and do you have an experience or a special
2: memory with that food? Oh, don't even play with me on that one. We, we might do it a lot. Um,
1: <laughs> Go <laughs> so, in. Yeah, so everyone
2: knows if, if you know me, you know I like. We're like in East Africa, we do chapatis, um, okay. and they're really, really good. So mm-hmm. I love that, but I love also. I mean, our traditional dish is with peanut stew. That's like green banana with peanut stew. So I love mm-hmm. that. But even more than that, I like, you know, if you're from East Africa, we have like in West Africa, they have like pounded yam. We have the equivalent, which is ugali. And you have mm-hmm. it with um, with what you'd call kale, but it's really, we call it sukuma wiki or get you through the week. So that's kind of mm. like a staple <laughs> food, but it's delicious. And then mm. to go with that is like, we do like roast meat. I, uh, you know, you can roast goat meat or whatever, roast pork. But that roast meat, and usually you have that with a beer. Like I don't really drink, but if I have a roast meat with a beer, I'll drink because the two
4: mm.
2: are like made in heaven. And you have it with like tomatoes and onions and hot pepper, and mm-hmm. then you you kind of eat with your hands. And I like the feeling of being in my country and eating with my hands. And then. Oh my God, I think like forgot about that one. Yo,
4: like, <laughs> go if ahead. To,
2: like, if I had to be a vegetarian, I'd have to go to Africa because they do like the, it's just, it's just, it seems like they're like red beans. But, uh-huh. yo, I, you have it with like ugali or whatever you want or rice. But I could eat that every, like, when they cook it at home, I was like, you know, I was like, if I had to live on this the rest of my life, I'm good. And then, yo, I think we've got that one. Well, there's this other one here.
0: This interview is just gonna take a turn, but that's fine. Keep going because I love I love hearing about the food.
2: There's this other one that you eat with um. My mom makes it, but you eat it with the the um the chapatis. It's it's another like it's like lentils. Mm. It's delicious. So if I had to be a vegetarian, I'm doing it the African way. In fact, I even bought like there's a I've just found yeah in South London a Ugandan restaurant. And when I found mm. that out during you gotta understand what I just did. I just said to you, <laughs> I found that during COVID. I was like, you oh, know wow. what? God loves me, you know, for real. <laughs> <laughs> Can't go all the time, but they, they like they do the roast meat, they do the, the Ugali or whatever, but yeah, but I was just like, Yes. Now they just know me. Like when I'm when I'm making my order, boom, it's me. Yes there. Go. Yeah. Uh, the next special. The next special, is it?
0: You'll have to share the name of that place.
2: But, but saying that, I do love, I, lo- I love African food in general. Like I'll eat most any, because African food is just, it just reminds me of Africa. You understand? Mm. Like, like there was a place in Nigeria, went to, when I was in Lagos, and it was like a fast food joint, but Nigerian food. And mm. that shit was dope. It was like being an American diner, but with mm. Nigerian food, I was like, you know what? God is cool. I was like Mm -hmm. I I love the process of having to wash your hands and then eating it just seems like oh yeah yeah this is my this is my shit right yeah you know so (laughs) so, yeah man and and they like yeah so but there's many things and oh my gosh I forgot this yeah Yes. They do like I like we do Palau rice, and we do. Mm-hmm. They also at this place they do jollof. I love jollof rice. Oh mm-hmm. my
1: god! Who makes it best? This <laughs> we like to ask
2: people <laughs> who makes it the best. I'm gonna tell you, look, I, like I can't make it that well, but Nigeria make it good. But let's be real, Sierra alone is is the one I think.
1: Okay. Oh, I haven't I haven't had any from made yeah, by no, someone no. from I think that's where it
2: started. That's where they say it started. But the right. Nigerian friends will kill me. Ghanaian friends will kill me. But look, come on. It's all yeah. good food, yeah, yeah. man. It's good. It's that's kind of like saying who's the best: Jordan, Pippen, uh, Curry. Look, they all play ball. You know
3: yeah, I mean? yeah.
2: As long as it goes through the net, nobody's complaining. Like when it when it comes here, you think you're gonna complain? Hmm. Is this from Sierra Leone? You know, <laughs> you're just gonna <laughs> chew. You know? mm, There've
0: been some arguments. on your palate.
2: Yeah. That is, listen, it's good. Like everyone knows this is different, but it is good. Like you're gonna stand when you're here, and then you go there. That, that's like you, is that, that's like mm-hmm. going to the south of heaven. And then the west of heaven. And people say, which, which is the best side of heaven? You're like, we're in heaven, Joe. We're in heaven. You're right. You're right. You're right. So when I hear him arguing, I, I just look at two angels like I think, you're a bunch of idiots. I'm going to eat whichever one. I say, why don't you just all make a bowl? And let me test it out for you. That's the best <laughs> way I could say. Yeah.
0: I think, I think I have to. Um, I am going to take claim for some of the Sierra Leone one. Like I am not from Sierra Leone, but my name I've learned over the years is popular in Sierra Leone. So whenever people meet me from Sierra Leone, they think, you know, I am from That's there. I am one, one of them. Yeah.
2: But I will. Tell you, they make the one of the best peppers, pepper sauce. Oh my gosh, I like pepper in general. That's the other thing I forgot. Ooh. My, listen, me and pepper Oh my god, I love it.
0: you <laughs> to have us talk about food all I night. Know. And Nick, I <laughs> don't even if you know if you've realised, but you've only actually answered half of the question as well. Oh, sorry, I'm so probably,
2: I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's the second half? Are you going to eat it? Okay, yes. The answer is yes. <laughs>
0: No, the second half is, um, do you have an experience or a special memory with that food? Now, by that food, you're going to have to pick one of those things, a special memory.
2: Uh, I don't know if this is a special memory, but I used to go to boarding school in Kenya. And um, my uncle, when, when he was alive, he died of meningitis back in the day. But my uncle, when he was alive, he would be the one to take me to school. And he was kind of like my father figure because my father wasn't around. My mom was living here um, and he made an effort. So he had a big job. But he would shut down everything for that day just to take me to school. So he'd go to work. But when it was time to take me, he would pick me up. And he would make sure that the servant, the house girl, would make me like a stack. When I say stack, I mean a stack of chapatis. Like everyone knew. like So if I was coming back, it would be the same thing. Always coming back. Make sure that there's a stack of chapatis. And... I, I guess for me, I mean, I I love chapatis, but that was just a sign of his love to me, or mm. a sign of his fatherhood, so or or sign of his care, and so I guess for me, there there's the the, the taste of chapatis, which I enjoy, but also that part of that is my memory of my uncle. His name was Mike, Uncle Mike. Um, yeah, I'd say that's probably the best memory because um, um, and then one one particular was when he. I think I'd done really well. He because he said to me, "Look, do really well, and your mom will get you a pro- a, a bike a BMX." So mm. I came back expecting like your parties, and and he, he took me into the into the dining room, and there sitting on you know in, in the corner was a made up BMX. So
4: because nice.
2: my grades were so well, so I guess that is probably my, one of my best memories.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. those parties really fed you to get those, yeah. those good
2: grades. That's right, that's right. motivation, good you motivation. To, uh, yeah, it's probably what got Barack Obama to be president. He was probably in chapatis as well, so. True. You know, True. I, I, don't want, I don't want to say nothing, but you know.
0: It's the greatness, that's where it comes yeah, from.
2: That's right, that's right.
0: You're revealing all the secrets now, oh, the country well. inside of secrets.
2: Yeah, that's right.
1: Well, that's a beautiful memory. Do you have any other significant memories of you, you know, growing up in your childhood or um, adolescence where you felt like it really shaped who you are today?
2: The one that probably got me here, which I didn't know at the time, was um, um, I had a math teacher in one of my boarding schools. And because I had to move from one boarding school to another, it's kind of like learning a new language and new people because they're all in different places. So you're always this, you're always the new person you mm-hmm. and I, I sounded differently from everyone else. So I'd just come from living in Saudi Arabia in an international school where I'd been there for two years and my accent had changed. Not intentionally. I don't I don't you know, because like there were only four black people in my in my school in Saudi Arabia, of which no, five black people, of which two were my brother and my half brother and sister, and the mm. other two were were brothers. So that we, we were the only black people in that space. And we, you know, we went to this American school. So then when I came to this other school, I didn't sound African. I didn't sound English. I sounded American. And they, they I stood up like a sore thumb. So once again, there was this math teacher who kind of took me under his wing. And so my grades had slipped because, you know, you had to learn a whole new way of learning. And my grade improved because of him. The first grade to improve was my math grade. So that 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 uh, my math grade was amazing everything else was was trash but he died of a heart attack a few um, a few years later and that that floored me and I remember crying and um I did I just needed something to, I, I don't know why I felt so close to him I didn't realize it at the time because mm-hmm. I was just going to school but when he when he died and we heard about the news I had to write my poem um, I I I'd never outwardly expressed myself as a poet. I hadn't I come out as a poet. If that's the term, I don't know what it is. But um, that was the first poem I wrote for someone. You know, I mean, my mum says I wrote poems before, but that was the first poem I wrote for someone outside of myself. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that was a significant time. And looking back, I realized, you know, that was the birth. The birth of something. I, it didn't seem like the birth, but after that, I remember, like, when I was writing the poem, I was crying, and one of the girls in the class, she, they grabbed the poem, and then all of a sudden, the poem was in the, uh, was put into the 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 yearbook. It was read as eulogy. It was, you know, all of a sudden, I became the poet. You know, they, everywhere would go, they'd say, hey, Nick, you're going to this school to recite Shakespeare. Hey, did we go to church, and they'd say, hey, Nick, read us a poem. You know, so I just became the poet. Wow. I didn't think anything of it. I just thought, okay, well, these guys want me to do poetry. I didn't realize that this would eventually become my life.
1: Wow, that's beautiful. That's really, really beautiful. And you mentioned living in Saudi Arabia and living in Kenya, and then now you're in the UK. So can you kind of take us on that journey of how you came to live in so many different places, being originally from Uganda?
2: Yeah, I mean... Well, my country has only been ruled by dictators. So, uh, my mom and dad were studying. Uh, I think they had separated this time, but they were studying. My dad had mar- married again. And I was, I think I was living with my dad. And my mom was here uh, studying a PhD in Leeds. Mm. And at that time, the dictator in, in power was Idi Amin. And the, the Ugandan regime was crumbling. And, you know, um, my mom must have been like, yo, I've got to get my son out of there. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be similar to imagine what happened to America just a few weeks ago, but it was happening a, a, um, all the time for seven years, eight years. And then they're saying, yo, I think the American nation is, is at its knees. So my mom was like, you know, I need to go wow. there. So she got there, smuggled me out. So that's why I left Uganda. And, and if we didn't have such a volatile situation, I, I probably still would be in Uganda or my, my life would have been. A, um, a, a totally different trajectory. So that's why I came here. My mom wanted the best education for me. Um, she, you know, how, how African parents are. So she was, mm-hmm. she was working every job she could to get me into re- a really good boarding school here. Uh, that, that was too costly. So she eventually took me to a boarding school in Kenya. Um, and then it was just kind of my mom and dad, like, you know, they, they both wanted to have me. So I think I lived in, I came back to England for a while, for about a year. Then my dad said no. He, he needs to live with me. And my dad was a doctor, so he was in Saudi Arabia. So I lived with him for about two, three years. Then we we're about to come back here with his family. He also he's he's also an African man, and they also want a great education. So the school we we're going to, ironically, is just up the road near where I live. It's called Royal Russell. It's a really expensive school.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, they actually found an equivalent school that was in Kenya, and that that was where that math teacher was. It's called it was, back then it was called imani school which means i think it means faith or hope um um, in swahili and um so that's why i traveled back and forth so much it was kind of moving between parents or between boarding school and the first exodus was you know ru- um, running away from a dictatorial regime and wanted to be safe and then and then i came back when out you know when i was about Seventeen, 18, and I've been here ever since.
0: Wow, that's so interesting. So interesting to have been taken to all those places um, or to have, have experienced all those places and how that must have shaped you. And so thinking about um, your choices now, how does your culture influence the choices you've made throughout your life?
2: Well, I mean, I think I'm lucky the most is that I've seen many different types, of parts of the world. So I've I understand on some level, and I say this generically, but an African experience, but I also understand East African experience and can di- differentiate from, say, a South African or North African or, or West African, which even inside that has its own differentiating experience. I also understand this world is very biased. We live in a Western world uh, that mm-hmm. is white-centric, and I mean that in, 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 in just a pragmatic way. So I've lived in Saudi Arabia where I've seen... What a what a Muslim is, and they're they're lovely people. I've seen them at their best, but it's weird how we live in a world that after nine eleven, everyone I, I remember everyone was kind of wary of, you know, people who are different from them. And I think mm-hmm. the advantage I've had because I did it at such a young age, I'm aware that people are different. I'm a, I'm aware of the beauty of that difference. You know, I, I think I mean a few writers I want I want to kind of prop up poets like, for example, like Warsan Shire. And um, Safia Eliho, I, I love their work because it rem- like, I mean, they're great writers so of their own right. And I have to give props. So, that prize that I won, the Brunel Prize, it was a joint win with Safia. I can never put her name in because it just doesn't allow me enough space for my bio, but it's not because anything other than that. But, like, they remind me of East Africa. They remind me of home when you say what is home. And so, it, in my poeticness, they are part of my home. They would know, ne- I don't think. Like one time, I think I shouted out, "I I love you, Safia." But what I was really trying to say is that when you, when you read your poems, I feel like I'm at home,
3: Mm. or I feel
2: like there is a, there is a listening. Even though my experiences are not hers, she's she's a Sudanese American uh, uh, female. I'm a um, a Ugandan African male. But there's a lot in what she says or what Wilson talks about. I feel like. I feel like these people could understand me, even though I might never, even if I'd never met them, just hearing their work, I feel like there's a connection. So they're kind of like, I, I, I call them like my poetic, my immediate poetic family.
0: And so can you tell us a bit more then about the focus of your creative work and why you chose to centre your work around this?
2: I mean, I'm a writer. I mean, predominantly poetry. Um, I've written a, a, a collection of poems, but I also write plays. I've written a one-man show. Um, I, I've written a play. That play, the play I wrote was particularly around how my mom smuggled me out of Uganda. It's called the dark. Um, I'm trying to, I'm currently writing the script for that as well, because this potentially could be a film I'm working on my new collection of poetry. Um,
1: Do you have any themes that you feel like you're typically have a focus on when you're writing? Um, is it, typically reflective of like your upbringing your your cultural background or what's happening currently in your in the world at the time what seems to usually be your focus
2: oh, that's a good question i think the well the i'm definitely dealing with this thing about being in exile um i didn't realize i wrote like a person in exile but i have to i had to kind of embrace that but also what i call this term that's called the metic experience so it's like being a resident alien. So you, you live in one place, but you come from another. How do you express yourself? So even though as much as I love Uganda, when I'm in Uganda to a typical Ugandan, I'm not Ugandan enough. When I'm in mm-hmm. England to, to people who think that they, they are English, I'm not English enough. The first barrier is my color. And then just, even just my experience. I don't have like, even though I, I engage with a lot of the experience, a lot of my experiences are from elsewhere. So um i think i'm always writing about that that kind of you know there's a time in my life when airport felt more at home than my own home mm-hmm. uh, or wherever i was going to uh there's a time in my life and I mean even now when i get really busy um where living in a suitcase is more at home you know so i you know or a hotel room has, you know i know how to make a hotel room feel like home or you know and that's a I'm not doing that intentionally. It's not like I have fun, but I just, I've got used to it. You know, yeah. so, um, that sense of being nomadic, yeah. you know, so I enjoy travel, but at the same time, I wonder if it's cause it's just cause I was used to it. I used to travel by myself as a child. So imagine an eight year old on a plane being looked after by the hostess traveling to, you know, back and forth across the world. So, yeah. um, airports kind of resonate big in my world um suitcases there used to be a time when when literally so i'm I'm very good at making friends quickly but also i'm, I'm very good at, at kind of letting go of being aware that you know i might lose these friends so i, I i'm kind of that this person that everyone knows but nobody really knows Do you know what i mean mm.
1: Yeah, no, I get that. And you briefly um, mentioned the term medic. Can you just explain that a bit? And I know that you're working on a digital archive of these
2: experiences. Yeah, I mean, uh, the term. I mean, uh, the first time I heard it was at at Senate House in um, in London. Um, at um, there was a, there's a conference that happens every year for T. S. Eliot, a T.S. Eliot summer school, and Bernadette Bristol, the lady who just won the Booker Prize last year not not the present winner, but she she got me a free place. She literally emailed me, said, Hey Nick, there's a free place, do you want it? I was like like if she if she says there's a free place, you don't say no. So I said, right. Okay. Um and then they used to have talks in the morning, you know, and then all the people who all these big brains who know so much about Elliot, they've written books and essays and papers and stuff like that. So they they would have these talks in the afternoon and then this lady mentioned the word metic and um I'd never heard it before and it was something that Elliot called himself. So we celebrate Elliot T. S. Elliot as the Godfather of Contemporary Poetry in, in, in the UK, but actually he's an American poet. He's from mm-hmm. Boston. And, mm-hmm. you know, even though they, they'll probably claim him now because he's so amazing. But, uh, but what he does in his life is that for, when he comes here, he, he, said, he writes a letter to his brother saying, I'm finding it hard with this English life, this Metic experience. So he, 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 he felt like an alien in this place. And Over time, he becomes more British than the British. Mm-hmm. Like you, you hear it in his voice. He, 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 he gets rid of his American passport. He gets a, an English passport. He, you know, you hear it. He, he's the guy who wrote cats. It, that's, you know, that's, that's a, an English standard as it were in place. Yeah. Um, so I just thought, yeah, this is, I wonder if I could tap into what that experience is because I can relate, but I want to know what it is for black poets. That was my mm-hmm. locus. So I wanted to interview black poets. So I interviewed people like, um, dinette dinette smith um Malika booker terence hayes um former Poet laureate rita dove a uh, lady who ran, who spoke not just recently but who spoke at obama's um inauguration the poet elizabeth alexander um mm-hmm. anthony joseph kaya chigone i wanted to speak to them and i wanted to build these interviews which i'm going to keep working on you know to do because what i realized that's how i develop my work i look at my you know, my Ugandan self and my English self. And I say to myself, how can I tell a story? Because usually what they do for Black artists is they homogenize us. So mm-hmm. we can only tell one story. We can only tell the Black story, you know? So if there's a great Black poet, it's the Black poet or the Black comedian or the Black art, you know? So I'm like, no, how do I learn how to tell a story that differentiates me from a war Sanctuary, from a Roger Robinson, from, uh, you know, whoever else, T.S. Eliot? You know, so mm-hmm. you know, if you think of Shakespeare, Shakespeare never had to, never had to ask answer questions according to his identity. Yeah, you know? no, he, he was
1: just he was just asked questions based on his work and his artistry. his work
2: right. so 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 how do you equip an artist such as myself to be able to write without that, that necessary burden? And that's what I'm trying to understand um, in in investigating the meta experience, because there's something that Eliot figured out. That is useful to all poets particularly black uh, poets of color but I'm looking at particularly black poets
1: excellent and you've you've showcased your work internationally you've had things published um in different mediums as well what's a memorable sorry what's a memorable experience for you having work shown internationally
2: oh there's a bunch so we did a tour to America um, a bunch of UK writers with an organization called um, Speaking Volumes, um, and that was really good. It was like um, Johnny Pitts, Bernie Devoristo, Roger Robinson, myself, and loads of other. Um, I can't remember the whole list, so please, whoever was on that list, please don't don't kill me. But um, that we did that we did that tour twice. It was so good; they wanted us back. And um, but what it was, it made us aware that like the the black voices do not know each other well enough. Because um, when we went there, they, they weren't aware of us. But when they, but one day we went there, they wanted us back. right? So mm-hmm. that was a really good experience just to understand what the gap is, but also to be received well. Another really good experience, I did a tour with Roger Robinson. We did a, a, a tour of both our books, so his book, Portable Paradise, my book, Kingdom of Gravity. We made it into this thing called the Mixtape. And we did mm-hmm. a really uh, beautiful event. I think it was in Copenhagen. And like, you know, we'd been touring the show around the country and we'd had a few international, this was one of our international gigs. And it went really, it was almost like, you know, what we'd pictured it in our mind is how it came out that night. Mm -hmm. You know, it was kind of, you know, it reminded me of, not that it was Love Jonesy, but it just reminded me of that feel of, you know, like, like a a really good poetry night,
4: Mm -hmm. you know,
2: and. Cause, and, and it wasn't even like, I, wasn't, I wouldn't even say it was about us. I, I think we did our bit, but it was the way the crowd were responding. Like they were, they were so relaxed in the space. They were sitting down. They were holding each other. They were, they were engaged. They were moved. Like eh, they were, they are not only getting what the things we were trying to get across, but they were finding other meanings in what we were saying. You know, mm. they wanted to hear things again. I don't think they wanted us to leave the stage. And you know, when you can, at times when you're performing and you can feel a heat from the audience and you and and they move like a breath that's what it felt like so that that night was was like i had to ask roger i said look roger was was that was that me or was that good no nah, so <laughs> nah, it was good it was like wow because you because i was like oh, did i just make that up because sometimes you right. can imagine this was amazing and people were like yo that was rubbish <laughs> <laughs> yeah It's like when you do a great speech and then you suddenly, my breath stinks. You know, like it was like, (laughs) but but my breath was fresh and they were fresh.
1: Yes. And what does that do for you? Like, I know for some people that can inspire a whole other body of work. So what was it like leaving that kind of experience and then coming back to, you know, to you, coming back to Nick?
2: I think part of it, I mean, I just listened to um, a podcast today and I think an important part of what an artist needs is confidence and uh, in this talk the lady was talking about a lot of the confidences that we show are superficial confidence
4: Mm.
3: you know
2: what the real confidence is belief that's root confidence so when an artist believes in themselves and believes in what they can create and believes in in what's possible you know not not in what's planned but what's possible yeah so what i noticed that it did for both of us, you know, as, as confident as we outwardly perceive, uh, uh, appear, there's an internal confidence that you're really trying to build on. And I think that's what it did for us. And and also what I realized, because Roger and I, we we get friends, but we don't, we rarely work together. And that was the first time we had been able to work together. So it was, it was also confidence in that, even though it had its difficulties for many reasons. Uh, I think we were, we were both doing way too much, you know, we had our families, we had We were traveling all over the world. He was in a band. I was, I was, I think at that time I was both writing a play, doing an MA plus this, you know, plus Mm -hmm. I think like, so we, we were at capacity. Yeah. So to be able to be at capacity and still pull off something that good, I was like, wow, okay, good. Okay. Because sometimes you don't believe you can do it. You, you, you talk yourself out of your own ability to do something.
0: Right. So how do you how do you maintain that confidence
2: then? That kind of confidence is fragile because the funny thing about roots is that in and of themselves, a root is quite fragile. It's as it digs into the soil, it gets stronger, and as more roots come, it gets stronger. So you have to keep allowing that vulnerable space to grow.
3: Mm-hmm. So it's
2: it's a vulnerable space, whereas the bark and the thing is outward strength. It's the roots that decide how long the tree will the tree last. Will will you know? Um. Will we have another generation? Will we do it? So that internal building is a is is the delicate allowance of vulnerability, and learning. Mm
3: -hmm. So a
2: root is always learning the soil. Ah, here is the water. There is the stream. Keep moving out. We'll we'll hold you. Don't worry about how things are going on on the outside. Let's keep going. So it's that vulnerable learning and and I don't know if that makes sense, but you know, absolutely.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And it's important to try and remember as a creative, as a performer as well. Um, so you mentioned some, some things that you were facing with that um, well-received performance. But are there any other challenges that you faced working in the industry, specifically as a Black creative?
2: I just listened to um, the comedian Dame Baptiste. He was talking about the kind of one in, one out. Mm. Uh, there's that usually a lot a lot of times in spaces i'm the only black person in a room Mm -hmm. i think you know i I say this politely um i i I think that there is a general consensus that black they believe that black people are not intelligent because Mm -hmm. if you look across the board we're not in positions of power Mm -hmm. we're not the ones making decisions We, we you know we you know we're not the ones holding the money and all of those things. And it has to be that there's an agreement. There's an invisible agreement, a contract, if you will, that mm-hmm. I don't think black people can handle it. So I think that it's how do you break down those, those myths, those, those untruths that people have believed long enough that it's allowed them to create a system that actually is, is counterintuitive. So I think that's the main thing. Um, but at the same time, you know, art is important. That's how culture is made and. Mm-hmm. So what you what you notice around the world is that people hold on to culture. All the elites hold on to culture. Why? Because they know that this is how people are remembered. Yeah. So at the same time, they hold on to culture, but they also take from our culture. But they don't allow us to contribute in it. Not just financially or economically, or you know. But there's the other ways. You know. How do we allow our communities to feel like they have access to it? You know. You know how you know people in my community should feel that they have access to. The National Theatre, or you know, the National Poetry Library, or you know, you know, the National Opera House. But if it feels like a place that only belongs to a to an elite few who have a certain type of um, amount of money in their bank account, then is that really art for the people? No. Mm -hmm. Mm -mm. So I think that's that's the problem. That's one of my problems. I don't mean to be political about it. I just mean it's just commonsensical. You know, setting up the biggest thing this year or last year was setting up the Obsidian Poetry Foundation, mm-hmm. um, and the thing there. I mean, even though ironically, I went to Carve Conum, which is the model that we're basing it on. It's the same model, um, so I have to give a lot of props to Carve Conum. But um, you know, fifty people in a Zoom, fifty black poets in a Zoom, had never seen fifty black poets in a Zoom. That imagine that wow. in the twenty first century. Wow. Right, so that's that's what I'm up against. Whereas I don't think a white person worries about if there's going to be another white. No. You know, a white musician doesn't worry if there's going to be another white musician in the room because the likelihood is there's going to be another white musician in the room, even if they went to China. Yeah. yeah. Or they went to America, there'll probably be another white musician in the room. They go to Africa, there'll probably be another white musician in the room, and even then, even if they didn't, they'll probably find them their way up to the top, and that is the dilemma. You know, so I had people crying in a zoom because they hadn't even seen another black person. And it was at that zoom that they saw another black face. Now that's what's going on for black people just in the arts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What does that do to your mental health?
1: Yeah. And you, you briefly have mentioned Obsidian. Can you kind of tell our listeners what is that? And what are you hoping to achieve with that?
2: So it is a a writer's retreat, a one year a, a yearly writer's retreat for black poets um It's based on a writer's retreat that I was um, previously to be a part of called Carving that's celebrating its twenty fifth year. We invite fifty poets a year to come and do master classes with five tutors so they they get to see do a workshop each day with one of those tutors we we just did our our first one last year in November. And we had uh, over 140 people apply. We were able to give spaces to 50. We want to keep in touch with that. You know, they were all from all over the world, by the way. So we want to keep in touch with our, those who didn't make it. We want to, the most important thing, we want to be sustainable. So,
3: um,
2: mm-hmm. I don't want to be an initiative. I don't want to be just a, a flash in the pan. I don't want it even just to be, you know, something for me. I'm trying to do what Carve Conum did for me. Cover is based in America. We're here in the UK, but we're trying to just create a safe space for Black poets to to excel. Because if you if you can't see yourself, you can't be yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you're not given room to learn, how can you learn? You know, um, and I think a lot of people just give up because there is no there is no way in. You know. Yeah. I should have started it sooner when I finished Cover, um, but it, it, what triggered my activity was death of george floyd i mean i knew, I knew about these deaths already but mm-hmm. that the world a that the world you know that that you that the world would allow us to watch the death of a black man as if you know as if it was just uh almost like entertainment because that was murder that was murder and it was played back for everyone like i don't think they would do that for a white
4: mm-hmm. like yeah. I, I remember
2: when a, a, a white man got decap american man got decapitated they wouldn't allow it to be shown on television, but they allowed George Floyd to be shown on television. Yeah, and many others. And that, yeah. is, and many others, and that's that's the lack of dignity for the black body. Because to them, they just think they're just telling news about black. No, you're you're you you are you would not do that for a white body. You wouldn't show them being murdered on television. You would say, no, you can't. We we we, we are going to turn the cameras away. But what is being described here is this, and. That's coming from what we call the the reporting fraternity. You mm-hmm. know, so if it's if it's there, in a place that we, we're saying, you know, these are the best of the best, then it is everywhere. You know? So yeah, that, that's kind of what triggered me. I mean, sorry to get a bit passionate there, but yeah.
0: No, but it's good to be passionate and you know, things happen at the time when they're supposed to happen. So
3: True. Yeah. Very true.
0: Yeah. So it was obviously the right time for you to get that started last year. Um, And it sounds like an incredible program. So thinking about that, you know, it's something that inspires poets. What advice would you give to anyone wanting to pursue a career in writing poetry or creative entrepreneurship?
2: I think the first thing is find out why you love it. Cause you know, as we've seen, the world can be just taken away from us by a by a virus. You know, I know people have found it hard, but the thing that's got me through is is my love for poetry. So I'm still thinking about writing poems. I've been writing poems, but I get you know, like I get why I love it. And then if you love it, redesign your life around it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Treat it like a a a, a, um, a valuable human being. So in the same way that. My life revolves around my kids. My life revolves around my wife. My life revolves around poetry. You know, if you look back at my book, this shelf, if you come to me maybe 15 years ago, that's probably 10% of the books that you see behind me, but most of them are are, are poetry books, right? I realized that because I look at DJs and like, Yo, these guys are addicted. Look at all those records. Like, what is their problem? And then I look at my shelf and I think, oh, shit, I'm like that. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, because every time I do my tax return and I look and I say, yeah, I didn't spend much money on books. And then when I see what I bought, yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, all right, fair enough. Yo, that's a, that's a disease, you know, like, like, love what you do, get into it. Like, you know, like it, 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 is, a, it is really a gift to be able to be uh like i don't mean a romantic notion like hey i'm an artist but it's really a gift to to be allowed to be creative in general but then to be as in a creative field you know so you can be a lawyer and be creative you could be an architect and be creative I forget that you could be a doctor and be creative but i'm talking about to be a writer to be a poet like when you get the gift of it so um i, I look at it in the same way as you know we've been isolated because of lockdown. Like If I said to you, hey, man, if we're going to go tomorrow and have lunch in the park, that lunch would seem so beautiful because we haven't Mm -hmm. had it for such a long time. That kind of relationship to language, to poetry, is how you have to be about whatever you want to do in life. You have to get that. If this was taken away from me, Mm -hmm. I would miss it. It would mean something. So don't do it like begrudgingly or complaining about it. Or whatever, do it with the joy it deserves. Mm-hmm. Or e- even when it's difficult, like I don't enjoy it every day. Like I go read a book, but I am like yo. I get to be a poet every day, every day. Once you get that, once you're on that level, it's then about craft. So it's like I can I can make you, you know, like I like my food. I could cook you that food, but then you want to learn. Okay, how do I how do I make these the best onions? How do I learn how to cut that? that that's part of it. Okay, how do I saute these onions in the same way with poultry? Okay. I read that book, and it, it did this to me. How do I make you, somebody else, feel like that? I, I've had that feeling. How do I translate that? So that that's the craft of it, you know? So you've got to learn to love it, Then you've got to be willing to work at it, you know, whether or not, this is not even about publication or whatever. It's the joy of doing what you do, you know what I mean? And and sometimes we, because we live in this digital age, this Instagram life, this, this TikTok life, where everything is about showing a kind of, pseudo glamour you're always trying to push to deliver something as opposed to appreciate what you have
3: Mm -hmm. yeah
2: so i don't know i'm I'm not trying to be like go on anybody i'm just saying like the the real the real where the real energy is so the real energy isn't in the like going back to that tree isn't in the branches The real energy is in the roots which is also one of my favorite groups but that's another conversation
1: absolutely so what would you say is the biggest lesson you've learned from working in your career?
2: Keep at it. Keep at it. Like, um, stop watching the world. Stop complaining about it. Stop, um, this is just me personally. And when I'm talking to you, I'm talking to myself. So there are times when I didn't, I didn't keep at mm. it. There were times when I was, a, I was a complaint. There were times when I was more concerned about what other people are doing, how are they getting those opportunities interested in it i'm not that i don't want opportunities but the only way i when if you see me doing something well it's because i've been working at it you know mm-hmm. you know not not work like i'm not just talking about networking that i'm talking about oh like if i show you my desk i've been reading like just before this i was watching a film just before that you know i was writing some notes you know just before that i was talking to my my supervisor just before you know that for that i'm talking to my poetry buddy just before that I ordered a book. Like I'm, I'm, I'm at it. I'm at, I'm, and I'm not the only one, you know. So keep at it. And there'll be times when it looks like you're not getting anywhere. Just keep at it. You know, um, all all the people I admire, if you you know, our contemporaries, that's what they're doing. They're just keeping at it, whether whether good, bad, or indifferent. And and a lot of times when they keep at it, it's 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 in their hardest times. So this is a hard time. You know, learn something. Keep keep going. So I've, I've done done some courses talk poetry but I'm also I'm also learning poetry
1: yeah that's really solid and you know it's really about that consistency where you give yourself the space to let those roots grow if you stop then you don't allow that that vulnerable space to arrive you don't allow for that growth to happen underneath internally before you can show up top all the branches and the stuff that people that you're
2: seeing Other people do, and also what people don't understand is that because we live in such a volatile world where it's so easy to jump into many things, Mm -hmm. it means you can't build anything. So if you're always changing or stopping, once you, you, it, it it requires a lot of energy to start. So if you're always starting something, you're you're expending a lot of energy. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so it's like taking rolling a a boulder up a a hill. If if I'm halfway up the hill and then I say, ah, you know what, stop, yeah. And then it has to roll back down the hill. Then I have to use all that energy to get myself to ah. And then and why? You, what, what's better is just to say, look, let me just keep at it. Let me just keep at it. It's moving, it's moving slow. Let me keep at it. Let me keep at it. And then when you get to the top or to the top of that point of your life or whatever you're doing, there's the other side of the hill where it can roll down. And then you go up to a bigger hill, but you've got to keep at it. Otherwise, you will never move past that first hill, that first hurdle. And I think the other, I mean, to go with it is to get that life is. Hurdles. So right now, our hurdle is COVID. You can only measure success by the hurdles you overcome. There's no point calling it success if there's nothing to overcome. A lot of times, I realize my idea of success has been one where there are no hurdles. So you run. You're always trying to do the perfect race, and you think actually this race is probably going to be messed up. But if I make it to the end, what a success! Or if I still went on to do it, even though I knew it would be difficult, that's the success.
3: Excellent.
1: You've answered one of our questions that we didn't even ask you. <laughs> oh, that's okay. No, but that's amazing. That's amazing. It's all valuable information. And we've learned so much about you and your your path to where you are as a successful writer, an entrepreneur. Um so we're gonna wrap things up, but before we do, we do have a surprise question for all of our guests. Mm-hmm. We're gonna take it back to a little bit of food. I know you're passionate about it. Oh
2: yeah, you go, my I'm back in the room. We got my attention. Yeah, we
1: heard all that passion at the beginning, so it's in the name (laughs) of our show, Yams and Yucca, and so we got to ask you, which one do you prefer, yams or yucca? I think I'm a yams. Yeah, and how do you like them cooked? Yo,
2: oh, I'm glad you asked. You know, (laughs) (laughs) here we go. (laughs) I like them steamed, right? But with you see those beans, that's what you eat them with. What, be- what beans? They're, like, they're kind of like red beans, but they're not. Ah, oh, man, they're delicious. Yeah, I think I'll go for the yams. Okay. I, you know what? I'll, I'll eat both. I'm not, I'm, that's kind of like saying, hey, what do you want to do? You want to be happy or you want to be really happy? I'm like.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we'll take both. So give us the perfect meal where you have both of them in there.
2: Well, I think my perfect meal will have to have my mom there because my mom's in Kenya right now, so she would eat the cassava. You know, she, she, could, she could just eat cassava by itself. That's how much she loves it. So I think my perfect meal would be all the foods I said. Like, all, I just want a table of African food. Like, that's to me. <laughs> like, yeah, just like piping hot and like a bunch of friends. So, like my wife, my kids, Like my, my kids, whenever I buy that food, they love it. Like, you know, like one time my daughter took it to school. I was like, I was looking forward to, like I bought extra. I was like, yeah, there's one more for me. I'm like, Where's this? She goes, oh, dad, I took it, I took it for back lunch. Like that's oh, how I'm proud no. she is of her food, right? Like, <laughs> I don't care what they think, I'm taking this for back lunch. You know. <laughs> so like my daughter's more African than me. So I think eating food with my family I, particularly at home. Oh, I didn't even say this, yo. You know what my favorite food is yet? Yeah? Go in. It's um tilapia. Fried tilapia. Mm. Oh man, I didn't even know how I forgot that. No, <laughs> let's rewind this tape. This tape is done. No, fly tape. Let's go back. Oh. Yeah, man, I don't even know how I forgot that.
0: I notice you still you you still haven't dropped the name of this Ugandan restaurant either. You're just keeping it top secret, under wraps. I
2: man. I don't want too many people going there. Just...
0: Yeah, that, I did notice that, so That's
2: I just you know
0: <laughs> You're making it
2: hot. Come <laughs> yeah, on, yeah, keep it quiet. You never heard it from me. You know what I mean? <laughs> Just me and Obama. You know what I mean? yeah, not oh, so yeah, I'd have yo. Let me tell. You. So I'd have all East African food. I love I love East African food. I love Nigerian food. I, listen, I just love African food in general. Like mm. I just want it there, and a bunch of African people eating because I think that's a, one of the nicest things when you see people eating with their hands and just to, and music. You want people drinking, eating, and dancing like those three things. And then they can go home whenever they feel like and they'll, they'll have to get people to drive them home because they're going to eat and drink more than they should.
1: That's it. <laughs> listen, that's good, that's- listen, Kamara, first Yams and yuca Live is going to be a long table, all this African mm-hmm. food. Nick, you're going to help us yes. make the menu. We're, we're going to bring menu, you on. Absolutely.
2: I might eat the menu. I might eat the menu. I don't know. And you've got to have it. Like, seriously, like just so you have the jollof rice, you know. Yeah, the um, what's that? Uh, I, I love a goosey soup, man. Oh my gosh! Listen, we're gonna have a <laughs> oh, full man. spread.
1: We're gonna have the music. We're gonna have the vibes. It's gonna be eating, drinking, good laughs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, coming. It. it's coming. It's <laughs>
0: coming. Yeah, definitely. I I like the sound of that. So we'll have we'll let you know when that first live um meal is, Nick. Um, for sure, for sure. So you I appreciate
3: can. You.
2: Share your menu delight. I'm just actually thinking, thinking about it. <laughs> I can see myself chewing. I'm just mm. like
0: <laughs> Well, that you again restaurant's gonna get a, an a, a, an order this week. I can just feel it. I can feel it. Um but in the meantime, Nick, can you tell our listeners what's next for you, please?
2: What's next for me? Um, mm, that's a good one. Um, like I said, yeah, I'm working on my second collection. Um my so my second poetry collection—that's what I'm really working on. Um, it's just kind of hit like a, a groove. So I've been working it for a while, but it's—it's it's now I'm—I'm kind of you kind of have to get fighting fit to write that. So that's that. I'm thinking of writing another play, but I don't know what that's about. Um, and also my old play, there's a, there, there are a few things that it m- might be happening to. I can't really say much about now, but there might be some good news I might have by the end of the year. Great around that. And then we want to do another Obsidian, like so. That's the thing every each year, every year. So I'm really trying to secure the money around that. I mean, I need to be a little bit more open. I need to get a place where we can have people donate because of a lot of people are kind of reaching out to me saying, "How can we help Black poets develop? Where can we put the money?" So I need to be more proactive. But um, you know, I just you know, we're just trying to get through that. So those are my three main parties: the book, you know, you know what's happening with the, this play and helping um, those poets. But I know that other people aren't faring as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to tr- see if I can make sure that whatever work that's coming my way, other work I can trickle to other writers.
0: Yeah, it all sounds really amazing though. Um, so how can listeners learn more about you and your work,
2: please? Hit me up on the Instagram, um, on the uh, Twitter, stay in touch. Um, I haven't been... Communicating much not because it's not much there, but it's just that i've been trying to i'm doing what my friend said to me he says like we can protest on the outside, but actually what you do in your community is a lot more important and and I have some friends here in my local community they're they're doing amazing things that like, they're working with kids in the community like helping them learn help you know like stuff like that so I'm trying to do like I'm at my um they they're impressing me so i'm trying to do simile with with just poets nice so I'm really trying to help all poets in general, Um, I, lo- I love poets, I love writing, but particularly black poets, you know, I just want some equity in the game, you know, so.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Nick, I have to thank you for sharing your journey with us as an international writer and entrepreneur. We are certainly looking forward to sharing this with our listeners. And I'm also looking forward to getting that hot tip about the again restaurant once
2: you hey, send sh- over that message.
0: We'll keep it under wraps,
1: don't worry. The the listeners will have to do some, some investigative uh, work on their own exactly. to get to that place. But thank you so much, That's Nick. It. We cannot wait to get our live party going with you when we can finally bring everyone around the table. And we're looking forward to sharing this with everyone. So we're gonna take a quick break. Um, to digest everything that Nick has shared with us. And then when we come right back, we'll indulge indulge in a little bit of dessert. We'll be right back. We are back and it's time for our sweet and savory desserts. We're going to recap those moments in the conversation with Nick that gave us the sweet sugar rush or the other richer stick to the stomach savory moments so for me my sweet moment I had a couple I think what I really just enjoyed was how enthusiastic he was about the food mm-hmm. and you know I <laughs> me I you know it changes your body it changes my body it changes my tone it changes my accent and so it's like to get all of that energy from him about food it was just so fun mm-hmm. what about you
0: yeah, I had the same one. Just he was so excited about food. Like, we literally could have done the whole interview about just food, food. Mm-hmm. and this uh, very special, not to be disclosed restaurant uh, that serves weekend <laughs> and food. So, yeah, so that was definitely my, my sweet moment as well because you could just feel the joy, the energy, and the passion come through when he spoke about it. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm yeah and what about your uh sweet moment or sorry your savory moment
0: um my savory moment so I wrote down a few things um because he had a few motivating words mm-hmm. I would say and one of them was to keep at it yeah you know sometimes you or sometimes I want to not necessarily give up, but you mm-hmm. kind of feel the challenge of what you're doing. And so just mm-hmm. that reminder to just keep at it, consistency works. And um, and another thing he said is do it with the joy it deserves. Mm-hmm. So just bringing that joyful element into things I think is an important thing to remember, to do things with joy and to keep at it. So, yes, yeah, so those were my savoury moments. What was yours
1: yeah, I think the the to keep at it is really one of mine. I I actually was thinking about that for myself and I'm definitely going to use that to help me like when I get, like you said, in those moments where it's a challenge, I'm going to use that to just to remind myself to keep pushing because it can get, you know, especially we're still in it, like a year later, mm-hmm. there's not much difference from last year when we were in lockdown, like it just no. feels like it's never ending. So definitely in times like this where we have multiple challenges coming against us apart from mm-hmm. like the the I don't want to say normal or everyday ones but you know the pandemic is an extraordinary challenge so that's just going to sit with me but I also wrote if you can't see yourself you can't be yourself right and we've had a couple conversations about visibility and like what it means to see yourself you know, in the mainstream or out there doing great things and seeing successful people who look like you. And to hear him say that again, and even in that way, like what it kind of signifies the impact of seeing people who look like you in places that you want to be and that empowering Mm -hmm. you to be more of yourself and to stand in your authenticity. And like all of the kind of things that we have discussed with our previous guests, it's like that, that Phrase kind of culminated all of that into one nice package. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that really hit for me.
0: Yeah, that was good, and it's interesting how uh, a lot of sentiments keep coming up with the different people that we speak to. So
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah,
0: it is a, a good reminder yeah. and um, and a good a good thing to reflect upon as we finish up our episode absolutely. So that is it for today. And we'd like to thank you for listening. Please let us know what your sweet and savory moments were using the hashtag yams and Yuka. That's
1: right. Don't forget to tag us at yams and Yuka on Twitter and at yams and Yuca podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Alternatively, you can email us at yams and yuca podcast at gmail.com. Again, that is yams and Yuca podcast at gmail.com.
0: Yes, we want to hear your thoughts on today's conversation. Let's keep the discussion going as always. So please feel free to share your stories as well so that we can add them to our yams and nuka tapestry. And we will chat with you guys next time. Bye. Bye.